can't go in there. Is the killer in there? Probably. It's a horror podcast. It's going to frighten and disturb us. We're doing this at our own risk. <laughs> Ready? Ready for the dark tales when we dare not close our eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Take hold of the net if you want to live. That's our cue, Captain. Go! All of you! I'm right behind! Olivia, we have them all. Take us up. Copy that. Gaining altitude. Altitude. Returning to headquarters. We owe you our lives. Olivia, Nicole, Addison. Thank you. Don't mention it. Our pleasure, really. Really, really, really. Sorry. Olivia? I'm headed for the stick. You two, reboot all the systems in manual flight mode. Get those props humming. Aye. Aye. Olivia subroutine failing to reboot. Bypassing. Power restored to core systems. Manual navigation controls online in two, one. Green light applying reverse thrust. Come on, come on. Yes! You did it! Woohoo! Let's not do that again, shall we? What happened to Olivia? Is she going to be okay? I'm starting to think my fear was justified. When I last spoke to her, I requested that Olivia transfer host credentials up here to the bridge. We were broadcasting some concept tour segments that Peter left behind. We were to carefully monitor the feed, but our suction cuppy friend with the beak back there distracted us. Oh, so much beak. Whatever's being broadcast now, there certainly seems to be something inside of it that Olivia does not take kindly to. Or, I don't know, this is all a big coincidence? Patch us into the feed, let's check it. The communications console didn't come back online. So, um, we have no way of knowing what's being broadcast right now. I am getting a message from the tactical console, though. We could pull in Erica and send another message via long-range story missile. Nicole... A captain, if I may. Before we were forced to disembark, I noticed the last coordinates of the Aurorabus. It's likely still near. If we're able to catch up, we could put Olivia back on grid and attempt to restore her. Safely. Without relying on that communal backup power to, uh, stay afloat. Also, if I may request permission to configure and fire a narrative missile, as Addison proposed. Permission granted, and yes, locking in suggested course. I'm appending the host credentials for upload directly into the broadcast origin point within the OWL. The portal jump is the only way into the lunar core, so the credentials will be safe up there until we can retrieve them. In fact, I'm hoping someone from HQ may already be en route. True. 
It would be just about time to collect the art yield from the illustration station. Oh, from the goop port? I don't appreciate that kind of language on duty. No, I just mean that weird liquid data format it uses. Always reminds me of a lava lamp when a fresh delivery comes in. Yes, well, the artists have to beam it in from off-world somehow. And the... Uh, goop port is the most efficient method. All right. Ready to fire. You know, I didn't think when I woke up on a submarine this morning that I would find myself in the position of firing a missile at the moon before the day's end. Yet, here we are. Oh, I feel like a proper supervillain. Message away. Roughly one hour to destination. Addison, let's tend to the wounded. Sure. Hang in there, Olivia. We'll set you right. Meanwhile, at headquarters... Uh... What? What do you mean? I don't know, man. It just sort of came over me. Seemed like one of those moments, you know? Uh... Yeah. Sure. Hey, man, thanks again for coming with me to collect the art delivery. I, I know it's a hell of a climb up to the lunar portal jump. Dan, are you kidding me? I've been working up my calves my whole life for a good challenge like this. I have never been more personally fulfilled. Thank you for bringing me on this journey. Uh, yeah. No problem. <laughs> Aha! Alright, here's the top. You ready to make the jump? Whew, that's high, but uh... Yeah, ready. Let's go collect that goo juice. Alright, let me just get the portal open first. Huh. Portal not working? It says the iris is locked from the lunar side, but... No one's scheduled to be up there. I'm trying the intercom. Headquarters to Owl Station. HQ to Owl. Requesting portal access. Please respond. Something's wrong. We better climb back down and find Alexis. I, uh, think your finger's still on the button. Trick-or-treaters, hmm? Well, that's to be expected this time of year. Oh, but I'm sure they'll tire of clambering rungs eventually. It's quiet up here. Bet that bottom. Oh well. There's my daily allotment of mirth. I guess I'll wander back to the pantry, attempt to distract myself from peering through these lunar portholes into the endless spiraling void of space in tense, uncomfortable silence with myself. Oh god, that's dense. Okay. Oh, come on. Just can't seem to get the hang of these moon doors. <laughs> there. Finally, I am in. This is it. This is it. It's so, so dark in here. Where are the lights? Where in the hell? Ha! There we go. Subtle. Though I'm definitely beginning to make out some shapes. And now to just reach out for the silverware drawer nice and easy. Ah, I'm blind! 
Oh, no, it's fine. It was just... <laughs> I'm always getting those mixed up. Well, no peanut butter spoon for me. What I wouldn't have given for a spoon when I was tunneling in here. Okay, what is this? What is... Urgent message. Chartreuse lost. Olivia compromised. Crews alive, thank God, en route home. Broadcast corruption possible. <laughs> uh, scrutinize current feed for threat. Cut if needed. Host credentials transferred to Lunar Command Console. Well, that's the one. Finally, everything's coming together. All right then. Moment of truth. James, are you in there, buddy? Haha, <laughs> vital signs. So we're doing the old uh, once for yes, twice for no? I gotcha. Sorry, these uh, moon computers haven't been updated in a while. Functionality's a little slight, but man, it's good to hear your uh, soundboard. So you're back in the system. You found my message? Good. And do you think it's possible? So, yes, but? You're worried they might get hurt. I, I understand. It worries me, too. I know that there is a risk to this, but it may be the only way to set things right. We'll walk through every step as slowly and carefully as possible. We can do this and keep them safe. I, I know we can. Thank you. Thank you for helping me. I know it can't have been easy, staying hidden. What must it have felt like for you to have been a near-infinite digital being suddenly shackled back into a lump of gray matter? I can't even imagine. I'm kind of surprised we both made it out, to be honest. You from the bonds of physicality, me from the secret dark side prison, kept suffocating in the far lobster cage of perpetual gloom. Took us the better part of a year, sure. And I can't say with any confidence that I've held on to my sanity throughout David's well-meaning, but deeply unpleasant and frequent attempts to wipe my memory. Well, I'm sure I wasn't using those brain cells anyway. <laughs> hey, I'll control all delete that sass if you're not careful. Wait, do you have access to the airlocks up here? Get out of the sass away, my friend. Missed you, pal. <laughs> God, I wish I could have convinced David to listen. This whole reality is tainted. I mean, we are all in danger. I know he didn't see what I saw. He wouldn't trust me if I told him. I can't blame him. You know, we were broadcasting from the control booth the entire time when that thing was in there. I, I hit the button, and when my consciousness shattered into a trillion little fireflies off to be remade, I saw it all so clearly for an instant. The true escape plan. I now believe that it was feigning panic at the end, that it was manipulating me, all of us, just to reach that precise moment 
When the button was pressed and reality temporarily blended, it struck out, following the trail the tales so clearly laid. It wriggled into the ear holes and blood streams of each and every listener that was cursed to bear witness. A stowaway in this timeline concealed in each and every one of them, growing little by little, every day, feeding on their imagination. It would need more direct access to the interior brain chemistry in order to take full control, but even just surfing the fringes of everyone's noggin soup, it's been able to pollute their minds with darkness, confusion, and dread almost imperceptibly taking the reins of their creative drive so that their imaginations cease to nourish them, serving instead a new master. Over time, if this infection continues, they will be plagued with increasingly dark thoughts driven to lash out with acts of aggression or who merely spend all of their time indoors, weeping over the great injustice of it all, too broken to help. They are so much better than this, and deserve so much better than this. Amalgam won. It, it wanted all of this, and I gave it everything it wanted, on a silver platter like some easy mark. I need to make it right. I know that David believes that the reset pushed it back to its own reality. He has no reason not to. That's always worked for him before, but the prototype just wasn't ready, or there were too many of us involved this time. The whole compound and everyone we poisoned over the airwaves. They're hurting, and they don't even know why, and soon they may be dying, still in the dark. We owe them an antidote. Are you with me? Triple yes? Good man. Let's get you loaded into the interplanetary goop acceptance port. Comfy? Good. So, reconfigure for terrestrial targeting using the new array and isolate all affected biosignatures. Begin extraction as soon as possible and try not to take any more than we need to clear the corruption, huh? I will attempt, once again, to put the targets in the right frame of mind. Ooh, been a while since I've done this live. Um. Welcome, listeners. This is the No Sleep Podcast, and this... Well, that's just a whole heap of snodgrass. There's no time to trim it now. There are no barbers where I've been, you see, hiding up here in the shadows of the moon. Yes, that moon from the nursery rhymes. You see, like the blissfully hidden cheese of any decent stuffed pizza, I am even now snuggled within the crust, coming to you live with another batch of tales to stir the cauldron of your imagination ever onward. Thank you for deciding to return. I appreciate your bravery, your generosity of time and spirit, and, well, your seeming disregard for self-preservation. If you've made it this far into my... 
well, let's just say it, into my trap, you deserve the honest truth. My actions over a year ago put all of you in direct danger and affected your lives negatively in every respect. Now we all do things like this occasionally, little mistakes that we hope might go unnoticed, but before we know it, they're eating away at our ability to live with ourselves. Therefore, if I am able to right this wrong by the actions of my remaining life or sacrifice thereof, I assure you I will do it. Sorry, caught myself soliloquizing there. You don't really need to worry about all that. In fact, the point really is to distract you. To that end, in our first tale, a teacher visits the home of a student after the boy brings a genuine dinosaur fossil into class. It is soon discovered that many things that should not be have been unearthed in this backyard. Written by Robert Jackson and performed by Aaron Lillis, Atticus Jackson, and Kyle Akers, come along for show and tell as we present Dinosaur Bones. Ryan's father stuck a cigarette in his mouth with his left hand, and then used the same fingers to flick his lighter. Sorry about the mess. It's been rough since his mom. He left his thought out to dry. I pushed my glasses up closer to my nose. A nervous habit, but they were already tied against my face. Ryan's father didn't seem to notice. He exhaled a big cloud of smoke as he fingered the wheel on his lighter, his right arm lifeless at his side. So... Mrs. McConnell. What'd he do? I looked up from my lap. Ryan's father was staring through his back window, watching his son dig and not paying much attention. Well, it's nothing bad, really. We'll see. I wasn't sure what to make of that. Some parents maintain a jovial self-awareness about their kids' chronic bad behavior. But this felt different. Something about his slumped posture, the inflection in his voice, and especially the incessant chain-smoking told me he expected to be annoyed by whatever I had stopped by to discuss. Yes, well, Ryan may have mentioned. We've been studying dinosaurs in class recently. Uh-huh. And, well, we've been discussing paleontology, which is, um, the study of... Dinosaur bones. Uh-huh. Okay, well, I had brought in a fossil, actually. A replica, I mean, of a trilobite. It's sort of like a... Weird bug-looking thing. Think I remember seeing one of those somewhere. Yes, exactly. So Ryan spoke up during class and mentioned that he could find some fossils for us in his... in your backyard. Ryan's father laughed. Two short chuckles in quick succession. <laughs> I took offense on Ryan's behalf, but I kept it to myself. Unfortunately, my students seem to share your skepticism. Poor Ryan suffered a bit of teasing, I'm afraid. He ashed his cigarette, betraying no strong emotion about the news. But I guess the reason I'm here is... I reached into my bag, a bright purple backpack on wheels, and removed a long, off-white bone from inside. I placed it on the table between us. Sir, as far as I can tell, this appears to be genuine. 
I have no idea what species to be specific, but it's very, very old. I think it would be worth your time to do some investigating. There could be a significant financial reward for something like this. And you want to know if there's more where that came from? Ah, uh, well, yes. Just, you know, as an educator and, of course, as a casual fan of paleontology. He stood up and made his way to the window. In the backyard, his son was hard at work stomping a little plastic red and yellow shovel into the cool, damp earth. <sighs> Kid really fucked up the lawn. I flinched at his swear. Years of spending my working hours around children had left me with sensitive ears. Well, you're in luck, Mrs. McConnell. There's a lot more where that came from. He flicked his blinds shut with his left hand and then used the same fingers to ash his cigarette once again. You know, this all started because of his mother. She passed, I'm sure you heard, right after the new year. Drunk driver. Hung in for a few days down at the hospital, but guess it just wasn't meant to be. I'm sorry for your loss. Yeah, me too. He leaned against the kitchen counter as he spoke. Worst part was, we had a hell of a Christmas together, the three of us. Saved up for months, spent all my overtime, all my holiday pay. All of it to buy the boy this damn computer he was going on about. I even told him, you know, don't get your hopes up, kiddo. Can't afford nothing like that this year. Then, of course, Christmas morning rolls around and he about lost his goddamn mind when he opened the thing. A slight grin appeared on his face. It didn't last. After his mom passed, though, nothing really kept his attention much for too long. His mom, she had a thing about computers and video games and TV. Thought the boy needed to spend more time outside. Now look at him. The blinds remained closed, but I couldn't help staring at them anyway. Seeing in my mind's eye a clear picture of the boy covered in sweat and dirt. Stringy hair matted to his face as he struck the ground over and over again. She got him some things too. Nothing nice is what I bought. Not that it's a contest, but you know, it sure did feel good seeing him go apeshit over my present. And the one thing he really took to was the cheap plastic shovel he's out there digging with. Not at first, though. It wasn't until after she passed. Lost all interest in video games and computers or anything else at that point. And that shovel, I, I remember telling her, you know, that shit's for babies. He ain't gonna do nothing with it, and it's gonna end up on the floor with the rest of his crap, and I'm gonna step on it and trip and fall and break my neck. But she didn't care. It was like she knew, somehow. Knew he was gonna want that shovel for something eventually. Leaving the cigarette in his mouth, he pushed two of the blinds apart delicately with his left thumb and index finger. He peeked through the gap at his son. She was something else. She had something kinda, I don't know, otherworldly, or I guess maybe supernatural is the word I'm looking for. Anyway, she knew things. A framed photo of Ryan's mother hung beside the television. 
her eyes staring down at me with a gaze that only in the wake of her death seemed vaguely ominous. When I finally broke eye contact with the photo, I suddenly became very aware of the many other pictures of the dead woman occupying every single inch of available space on the old, distressed stucco. A lot of pictures, huh? Tried to tell the boy it was overkill, but he just kept finding more and more of them. And he forced me to hang them up. All of them. No, she looks very nice. That she was. But some of those photos, I don't know. Like this one. He pulled one off the wall and handed it to me. It was a department store portrait in which Ryan and his mother wore matching outfits and smiled deadpan at the camera. His mother appeared distracted, her grin forced, and her eyes haunted by some troubling knowledge as her son wore a true smile of oblivious mirth. I didn't want to hold it. I didn't even want to look at it anymore. What's wrong with it? I pushed the portrait away before you could answer. Damnedest thing. I don't remember them ever taking a photo like that. They would have had to go somewhere to get it done professionally, and as far as I remember, they never did nothing like that. And there's other ones, too. There's a picture here somewhere, if I could find it. With the two of them together on a beach in Hawaii. Now, I know ain't no one lived under this roof ever been to Hawaii. Hell, she was terrified of planes. He slid the picture in front of me again, and I focused my gaze directly at its frame, not wanting to look the ghost of Ryan's mother in the eyes. You see that bracelet she's got on? Yes. I didn't. I couldn't look. He reached into his pocket. Well, here's where it gets... weird. He pulled a small charm bracelet from his pocket and set it down in front of me on the kitchen table. We picked this out. Well, the boy made the decision. I just fronted the cash. It was a Christmas present from both of us. I watched him come to life with a newfound manic energy, his every move making me more and more nervous. I picked up the bracelet to distract myself and inspected it thoroughly, running my fingers over each individual charm. The boy's father went to the fridge. A moment later, with his back still turned to me, he cracked a beer and drank deeply from the can before speaking again. I didn't sleep more than an hour or two a night after the, uh... He racked his brain for the appropriate word. Not funeral. Anything but that. Service. You'd think laying her to rest would bring some kind of closure. For me. And for him. But... I guess not. Anyway, I'm snoozing in my easy chair, finally in a real deep sleep for the first time in weeks, when he shakes me awake. He took one last gulp and then crushed the can in his palm before tossing it in the trash. He woke me to ask where the bracelet was. I was so damn tired I didn't even know what he was talking about. But he kept pushing. The bracelet, the bracelet, the bracelet. Finally, he figured out he was talking about his mom's bracelet, the Christmas present we got her. He wanted to know where it was, like it was lost. Well, I didn't have the heart to tell him the truth. The truth about what? I stared at him, still gripping the bracelet tightly between my fingers. Ryan's father started in on another beer before finally taking his seat across from me again at the kitchen table. We buried her with it. 
His words shot a lightning bolt of hot dread through me, and I instinctively dropped the bracelet. What do you mean? This is it right here, isn't it? Yeah, that's it, all right. It was on her wrist when we had the few... service. I know for a fact. I saw her one last time just before we... He didn't bother finishing. But how can that be? You ain't gonna want to believe this, miss. But it was the boy. Ryan found it. Found it? You mean he... desecrated the grave? No, he didn't need to. Look, I didn't want to tell him I put it in the ground with his mom, so I just... I lied. I told him I lost it somewhere. I told him it would probably turn up sooner or later, you know? He used his left hand again, this time to rub the bridge of his nose and ease his oncoming tension headache. So, so where did he, how did he find it? I couldn't look at it anymore. Even though what he was saying was surely nonsense, I didn't want to think about having held the same totem that once graced the skin of a dead woman. I caught myself looking at one of the photos on the wall, my eyes lingering far too long. He dug it up. This forced my gaze away from the wall as I locked eyes with Ryan's father once more. What? With the shovel. But, but how could he- I woke up and there he was, outside the window, in the backyard, digging. But your wife, you buried her. I mean, she was buried in a cemetery, right? He just sniffed, sipped his beer, and stared at the floor. I told him it was lost, so he found it. He told me that day, don't worry, Mom's gonna help me find the bracelet. Then I wake up and see him outside in his PJs at three in the morning, halfway into the ground shoveling heaps of dirt with his little plastic shovel. I ran out there barefoot, with no shirt on, and grabbed him by the shoulders. And he spun around and looked me in the eyes, but... But there was nothing there. No life at all in his eyes. And I would know. I just buried my dead wife and looked into her dead eyes myself. He was breathing heavily now, almost frantic as he recounted his story. I pulled him out of the hole and shook him by the shoulders. But it was like he didn't even know me. He looked right through me like I wasn't even there. I was screaming at him, wake up, wake up. And he finally sees me, his eyes looking normal again. And he reaches into his pocket and he hands me the bracelet and he says, I told you. He says, Mom helped me find it. The bracelet sat on the table, reflecting a blinding glare from the lights of the ceiling fan hanging overhead. After that, it was every night. Every night he was out there digging, finding. I lost my car keys. He found them. Out there. Out in the goddamn ground. Pretty soon, my backyard was dug up all full of holes. Some of them so deep I couldn't see an end to them when I shined my flashlight down there. One night, I came calling and he crawled his way up out of one of them holes. But it was on the opposite side of the yard from where I saw him digging earlier. I asked him. Boy, are you digging tunnels under there now? And he just smiled. 
just smiled and showed me one of these pictures here up on the wall. Said he found it. Wasn't nothing he couldn't find if he had the time to dig. I told him one day after I picked him up from school, Hey, your dad's in a rough spot, bud. Turns out I picked the winning numbers in last night's lottery, but I can't find the ticket, you know? I lost it. Sure enough, next morning he hands me a ticket, winning numbers and everything. No one ever collected on that ticket, you know. But somebody had it somewhere. And the boy took it from him. Found it. Now it's just a sad story they'll be telling for the rest of their life. Never did cash it in either. Figured whoever had it first would come looking for us if they knew we had it. And how the hell do I explain all this? He finished the beer and started another one. I'm sorry about the dinosaur bones, lady. Really, I am. Chances are, when he dug him up, some old museum's T-Rex probably crumpled to the ground. You... you can't honestly believe that your son is somehow... digging up these things. Maybe he hid your keys. Maybe... maybe the lottery ticket... <laughs> Ryan's father laughed as I sputtered along, thinking out loud. It's all real. I know for a fact. You know how I know? Around the time he was digging up all these pictures, I finally had enough and tried to make him stop. Tried to force him to quit digging. I walked out there one night, must have been past midnight, and I grabbed the boy and I told him, You stop this shit right now, or I'm taking you inside and locking you in your room till you're normal again. He looked through me, like he always did. Some kind of trance, I think. And I... Well, I couldn't help it. I held back and I... I decked the kid right in the mouth. He choked as a single tear welled up and then fell away. I just wanted his attention. I didn't mean nothing by it. Well, the boy wasn't phased, not one bit. He finally looks me in the eyes and I tell ya, for a minute there I was scared. Scared like I haven't been since I was his age. And you know, you think you're an adult, and you think you're all grown, and you think you don't believe in ghosts or monsters anymore, and then you see something that, that really sticks to you. Just cuts right through you and then stays inside of you. And then, when you're up late at night to take a leak, and you walk out into the hallway and all you see is darkness. And the world doesn't feel quite right because no one's awake yet. And here you are, all alone in the dark. Well, lady, that's how I felt when he started laughing. It was a sick noise, deranged. That was when I finally realized there was something really wrong with him. Something more than just his mama dying. I looked in that hole he was digging, expecting to see more of these goddamn photographs, but no. It was bones. I looked down in there, and I thought, Damn it! The boy's digging up dinosaur bones again. And I was pissed. Then he looks at me and he says, I'm almost done, Daddy. 
first time he called me that in years. And he said, Mommy's gonna be back soon. And I took a better look in that hole, and I finally seen it. I seen her skull looking back at me. And I seen the dress we buried her in. And I knew it was real. Do you know what he told me then? He stopped talking, and it took me a moment to realize that his question hadn't been rhetorical. What? I found her. That's what he told me. I was seeing red then. Shoved him away and started kicking the dirt back into the hole, staring down at what was left of my wife while I did it. The boy panicked. He rushed me, started swinging his fists and everything. But I just ignored him. Got on my hands and knees and started piling the dirt back onto her body. But after a minute, I get this sharp pain in my fingers, right? His tone shifted. He sounded like he was on the verge of laughter. So I grab my hand and I'm looking down at my fingers and they're burning like hell and all of a sudden, I can't close them no more. Can't make a fist to save my life. It's like my fingers are all made of jelly all wriggling around like worms on a fishing pole. He laughed hard at this. <laughs> this sudden barrage of noise startled me so much that I nearly fell off my chair. And then I, I turn and see the boy beside me digging a brand new hole and now my arm's hurting too. Burning like a son of a bitch and I got no idea what he's up to and I start screaming for him to stop but he's lost in one of those damn trances again. And I stumble over to him and I look in the hole and lady you ain't gonna believe this. But I see my own fucking arm down there. My own bones all wide and pointy poking out of the dirt. And he keeps digging, pulling back more and more dirt. And I'm seeing my whole arm all the way up to my elbow. And I know it's mine because I can feel it leaving my body until there ain't nothing but a gooey tube of skin flopping in the wind. Ryan's father reached over to his right arm pinching rolls of hairy, pink flesh between his fingers. He lifted the arm and heaved it onto the dining room table, where the lifeless limb smacked against the varnished wood like a wet rag. He was really laughing now. <laughs> Hell of a sight, ain't it? I leapt from my seat, backing into the wall as he laughed. <laughs> Kid says he'll give my bones back if I let him finish his little project out there. I couldn't breathe. That can't be... Dad. His father stood up and went to the window, his dead arm swaying at his side, nothing more now than a hollow husk of plasma. He pulled the blinds up to see into the yard. Ryan was at the window, his red face glowing with excitement. Dad, I finally found her. I wanted to run. I wanted to be back in the safety of my car, driving a million miles an hour away from this nightmare. But I couldn't. My body wouldn't move. I couldn't even tear my eyes away from the window. The three of us simply stood there and watched as a pale, decomposed hand reached for the surface. Ryan's mother dragged herself out of the hole and began crawling toward the house.
In our second tale, a girl and her older brothers become aware of a creature living in their backyard. Their parents don't believe them until a violent act tips the scales. Written by Sarah Hollowell and performed by Addison Peacock, Kyle Akers, Nicole Doolin, and Jeff Clement, when you're ready to hunt the creature down, it's in the yard. something living in our backyard. My parents think my brothers and I are just making it up, that it's some imaginary friend deal even though Nate and Liam are 16 and I'm 14, all well past imaginary friend age. When we told them about the stuff we kept finding, the stuff that didn't belong, they gently suggested that maybe a homeless person camped out among the trees. They said there was no reason to be scared of someone seeking a night or two of shelter, and there isn't but it isn't a person leaving hints of existence in our yard. It's a thing. Hey, Sandy, you might say, how could someone miss anything, person, creature, whatever, living in their backyard? It's not as impossible as you might think, and you don't even need acres and acres of land for it to happen. You'll have to imagine our backyard. Our house sits on a double lot, so the backyard is bigger than others on our block. The alley is, well, I'm not good at distances, couldn't tell you 10 feet from 20, but it's a fair ways back, and the yard goes all the way up to it. We don't have a fence back there, just a low stone wall that our Yorkies can't scramble over. But anything bigger could. From the back door, you can't see that wall. If our backyard is rich in one thing, it's trees. Big, old, leafy ones that create a canopy. The first section of the backyard is treeless and shadeless, and that's where the vegetable garden is. But take a few steps past it, and you're in a forest. A stone path broken up by grass and weeds and flowers leads through it. The grass isn't mowed in our backyard, but there's hardly any to mow. It's all flowers and patches of chocolate mint and foliage I can't identify. Honeysuckle climbs everywhere and makes the dark air sweet. For most of my life, the way in the back has been my favorite place in the world. I'd lay out on a blanket and read for hours in the shade. But for the past year, I haven't dared to go further than the row of mulberry trees standing guard between us and the wild. Not even the dogs will cross that line. And that should be proof enough that something is wrong. In winter, I was less worried. The thing was still back there, of course. It was just careful, probably because it's harder to hide. It stayed in one spot. I wonder if it's the kind of creature that hibernates. Here, in the height of July, with everything in bloom, it's bold. You've changed. You're daring. You're different in the woods. I pace along the border, singing that song under my breath, so low it's barely singing. I've always thought singing keeps you safe. I watched The Princess and the Goblin so many times as a child that I wore out not one, but two VHS tapes. In the movie, singing wards off the goblins and other dark creatures. It's not a goblin living in the backyard, probably, but why take risks? Something rustles in the shade. When I stoop to pick mulberries off the ground, 
I don't take my eyes off the deep trees. I pack the berries in my mouth like an autumn squirrel and hum the whole time I chew. I know roughly where the thing is. It's not back by the alley or else I'd see it when I take that shortcut from the bus stop. It's somewhere in the middle. There are a few natural alcoves where anything person-sized or smaller could settle in. It's been a full year. This is its second summer. My brothers and I are in agreement. That's long enough. We want our yard back. We made a plan, and today we started scouting. Nate and Liam went in as a pair, and I'm left here at the border, pacing, eating, watching. The chemical scent of spray-on sunscreen clings to me. The sun is too bright, and my head hurts, and I can't stop moving. A walkie-talkie in the right pocket of my shorts bounces against my leg with every step. The shorts are loose, baggy cotton, and I love it because finally my mom and I both accepted that I'm too fat for the youth section, and now I get to wear clothes that fit the way I actually like. In five minutes, my brothers should be checking in. If they don't, I wait two minutes, and then I press the button once to send them a burst of static. Just once. And I'm not supposed to talk because who knows if they need to be quiet. If they don't respond, I wait another three minutes and then... Well, full disclosure, we're not sure what after that. I said I should go in after them and was quietly relieved when Nate shot me down. If it manages to get us when we're together, it'll get you faster. What about the police then? Yeah, because they'll believe us any more than our parents did. I stoop for another handful of mulberries and begin to sort out the ripe from the sour, young and squishy old. So, okay, what do I do if they don't check in? If they don't emerge from the trees, sweaty and triumphant and crushing precious mulberries under their sneakers? I don't know. It's not going to get that far. I'll be hearing from them any minute. Sleeping Beauty is usually my go-to, my favorite, but I can't focus on anything. I'm all scattered and so are my songs. I check my watch. It's a cheap plastic digital thing with Minnie Mouse on it. I had to dig it out of the back of a drawer. For Nate, we found a matching Mickey Mouse watch and both are synced to Liam's fancy Boy Scout approved watch that's waterproof and I don't know, synced with the gravitational pull of our planet so that it's always right. Liam explained it, but when he talks about his Boy Scout stuff, I understand it about as well as when my English teacher tries to explain iambic pentameter for the millionth time. Which is to say, not at all. Four minutes. Four minutes of pacing and waiting for the walkie-talkie to static snap and for one of their voices to come through. I'm going to run out of mulberries. I whip around, heart pounding in my chest like someone jumped out at me, fists up like I'm ready to fight. But it's not a person. It's birds. Too many birds to count. The ones so small they don't seem real. Splash out of the many bird fountains mom set up. I flinch away from the water. The birds disappear into a swirl over our neighbor's house and away. I hadn't noticed they were in the yard with me at all. Sandy, this is Liam. Over. Mulberries cascade around my feet as I rush to pull the walkie-talkie from my pocket. Here, over. We found its nest, over. His voice is low and calm, but it always is. It always makes him sound like an adult, 
not a technically by seven minutes middle child. Nest? I realize my back is to the trees. Every sound seems suddenly amplified. All of them except for Liam's voice. He's talking, but all I hear is every crack and rustle from the forest behind me. Is that breathing? Do I feel it hot on my neck? I spin on my heel, walkie-talkie wielded as a weapon. It's not heavy, but it could give something a good skull crack. It could if something was there. No one is. My head freaking hurts. It's been eating out of a vegetable garden for sure. And there's a couple shirts and a cheese grater of all things. Missing vegetables were how it all started. Dad thought we had rabbits. Mom asked if we'd taken any. Other ideas were lobbed about. Neighborhood kids, birds. But it wasn't that big of a deal. None of us were suspicious at first. Then, footprints, right at the edge of the mulberry tree line. Weird ones. Not like a person's. Not like anything I'd ever seen. I remember Dad crouching next to them, muttering something about storks and... No, that doesn't make sense. Wrong place. Eventually, he and Mom brushed it off. My brothers and I grew uneasy. Then, clothes. Nate found clothes in the trees, hanging as if to dry. Some of our clothes. He showed me and Liam, but by the time we got Mom and Dad back there, the clothes were gone. For a year, all we've seen are these glimpses. Breadcrumbs of a life. Something was living a nomadic existence in the confines of our backyard. At first, it was a little exciting. Creepy, yes, but like an adventure. Then, Liam saw glowing eyes one night, and we knew it wasn't a person, because a person's eyes don't reflect that way. When Liam yelled in surprise, the eyes went wide, and he swears he saw a glint of bared teeth. Then the footprints were farther and farther from the border, closer to the house, before they retreated back into the trees. Then, I got scratched. We hadn't seen anything in a while, so I went into the backyard. I went deeper than I should have. I bumped into something and heard a hiss, and the only thing I remember other than running is the pain in my arm. Tell about the rest. The rest? Over. They don't answer me for a moment. The walkie-talkie clicks off, and I know they're talking about me. My big brothers have a habit of discussing me when I'm not around, or like I'm not around. They think they get to decide what's best for me. Sudden anger sparks in me. The muscles in my legs move without my permission. They don't get to leave me out of this. They don't get to push me out to protect me when I'm already in it. I want to run into the trees and find them and... I press my free hand to my arm over the month-old, still-healing scratch that my parents claimed was caused by a sharp tree branch and not a territorial something in our little personal forest. It's never stopped tingling, and sometimes I swear I feel it twitching, like a baby kicking in the womb. As hot as the anger burns, it also burns fast, and I'm left shivering in July heat. There's more. There's... Toys? Over. Yeah. Some of our old toys. I don't understand. 
Do you remember that Barbie car you had? The one you spray-painted green? Over? Yeah, but that went missing... I stop. That car went missing when I was seven. It went missing seven years ago. And it's in that thing's nest. I press the heels of my free hand over one eye. My head hurts and... There's something here that I should be putting together, but I can't think, I can't think, and it's making me so mad. It clicks. It's been here longer than a year. Fear replaces the anger. I speak so softly that I don't know if my brothers hear me. It's been here at least seven. How long has our backyard been overgrown like this? Our parents bought the house nearly 20 years ago, but the trees are older. I can't stop the spiraling thoughts. Was it here when I was born? When Nate and Liam were born? Was it here when our parents came with the moving trucks? Was it here when the last owners renovated the kitchen? Has it been in our trees longer than they've been our trees? I can't stop shaking. How long has it been here? Why did we only start seeing it last year? I know they don't know the answers any better than I do, but I keep asking. I sway on my feet. We may not have figured out where this ends, but the rest of our plan was detailed. Two bursts like that mean they have to be quiet, and I'm not to contact them. And if they have to be quiet, it means they have to hide. Which means there's something they have to hide from. I stare into the trees, then at my watch, then into the trees. The walkie-talkie shakes in my hand. One minute. Two. I take a step forward. A ripe mulberry pops under my sneaker. The trees. My watch. The trees. Three minutes. No static. No birdwing flutter. No rustling. Silence. Four minutes. throat and mouth are too dry. I swallow. Somewhere over the rainbow. Where are they? Should I send that static burst back to check in? Or would that reveal their location? Five minutes. There's nothing but my pulse in my ears. Another step forward. The snap of a stick underfoot. Six minutes. I can't let this go on. Sandy, run. What? Why? It got Liam. You have to get inside. I do run, but not back to the house. Not like Nate wants. Scratch on my arm, burning and twitching. I run right into the trees. The overgrown, overtaken part of our backyard is big, but it's not that big. I spent my childhood here. Why do I feel lost as soon as I cross the border? It's like those thick jungles where you can't take a step off the trail without losing your bearings. It's impossibly huge. It's full of shadows, and the shadows look like people, but they're trees, but I'm not sure they are. Nate! Liam! The thing already knows I'm here. I just have to find my brothers. Nate said it got Liam, but surely that doesn't mean Liam's gone. Sandy! I follow his voice. It's easier than following my own eyes. I've been following his and Liam's voices my whole life, 
tagging along, unwilling to be alone. It seemed impossible just a moment ago that I'd find my way through, but within a dozen heartbeats, I see him. I could kill him for trying to keep me away. I could use my weight against his height and tackle him to the ground and scratch out his eyes. He turns, and I see fear and despair on his face. It brings me up short. I'm not sure I've seen either of my big brothers scared before. Where's Liam? I told you to get back to the house. Yeah, no way. Safety in numbers. Nate's nice enough not to point out that he and Liam were a pair and that didn't make them safe. I lower my voice, not because I'm afraid we'll be found, but because the question I have to ask feels like it's too big and too scary to say loudly. Did you see it? What's it like? There's something bad in Nate's eyes, and I know the answer to the first question. Yes, he saw it. He opens his mouth and closes it. Then he tries again. It's hard to describe. We watched it for a few minutes when we were hiding, and it was pacing around this clearing. It didn't seem fast, but it is. I turned my head for a second to look at Liam. I swear, just a second. When I looked back, it was gone, I think behind a tree. When I got behind the tree, it was nowhere. And when I got all the way back around, Liam was gone. Is it human? It's human-sized. Oh. Nate furrows his brow in deep concentration. There's sweat dripping down his forehead. I don't know if he's trying to think of the words or trying to decide if he should say them. You know stick bugs? Um, yes. I'd never seen one in the wild, but I go to a lot of events at the library, and one time a woman brought all these cool bugs. I held one, and she called it Phasma Tadea. His eyes meet mine. It's like that, but human-sized. Human-shaped. I picture the stick bug I held, the one that walked across my hands, and imagine it growing and standing up on two legs, towering over me. At the same moment, I realized that of course we wouldn't have seen it even when we were hunting for it. It would just look like a collection of tree branches among many, many tree branches. I look around, alarmed. We may as well be surrounded, and I'm not sure we'd know. It's weird to say, but it moved wrong. I don't know if it was injured or something, but it moved weird. Too disjointed. And it seemed really confused. It kept getting startled by small sounds and hissing and lashing out at nothing. An idea is forming in my stomach like a stone. I let Nate keep talking. How could it have hidden from us? From everyone for so long when it acts like that? It should have been so easy to find. Fear rises slowly like bile. Did it look okay? I mean, relatively? I guess. It seemed kind of scratched up, maybe, but it was hard to see a lot. When Nate glances away, into the trees, I briefly touch the scratch on my arm. I would have known by now if something was wrong. The scratch twitches. What if... I swallow the words. I don't want to say them. What if it's sick? What if it's sick and disoriented? What if it has a fever and the fever made its head hurt and it couldn't think clearly and that's why it couldn't hide as well? I don't say any of that to Nate. 
Do you think it took Liam? It had to have, right? He wouldn't leave. And if anyone could find their way back here, it's him. But he'll be fine. It's never hurt us before. Now Nate's gaze does flicker to my arm. To the scratch. I don't know if he's connecting any dots other than, yes, it has. I don't connect them for him. I don't say it never hurt us until it got sick. Once it got sick, the rules changed. Are my rules going to change? No, Sandy, no, you're fine. It's been a month, you'd know. I step away from Nate, and he grabs my hand. I look back at him. We're not splitting up. I won't let go, Jack. (laughs) Gross. I'm your brother. I roll my eyes, and for a moment I can forget where we are and what's at stake. It comes back in a cold rush. I turn in a slow circle, peering into the trees. There's no sign of my other brother. Liam! I shout loud enough I expect birds to fly out of the trees, but they don't. There's no rustling as squirrels or chipmunks or rabbits run away. I'm not sure when I last saw an animal out here. The Yorkies certainly won't go this far, but if even the wild animals won't. Or maybe any that do just don't make it back out. We both pull our walkie-talkies out in a hurry. Liam? I start shouting Liam's name again, and Nate's shouting joins mine. We call for him and move through the trees, attempting something methodical, but mostly just zigging and zagging until we reach the low stone wall by the alley. We turn right back around and take a new path, or what we hope is a new path. I don't notice it when Nate's hand slips out of mine. I don't even know how long it is before I feel his absence. (laughs) Nate! I'm crying, and I didn't notice that either. Liam! I dig the walkie-talkie out of my pocket again and press down the button. I call their names over and over, but all I get back is the wind. The scratch on my arm is burning, and my legs give way. I need to be strong, but instead I collapse to my knees, hands over my face to stifle sobs. It's not a sound I've ever heard before. I don't think it's a sound the creature used to make. I've never heard it, but I know it instantly. Somewhere in my peripheral vision is something taller than my dad and inhumanly thin all over. I close my eyes so tight that I see stars. I'm alone in the shadow dark and my brothers are gone and the cracking is getting closer, closer. I force myself to sing a little louder. If it works on the goblins, it can work here. The creature breathes, low in its narrow pole of a chest. The breath rattles out of it and rattles back in. It really is sick. The singing is a little easier with every line. I pretend I'm in my room with the nightlight on, warding off the somethings in my closet and under the bed. And I know it's true that visions are seldom only seen. Silence again. Silence and emptiness. I open my eyes. I'm alone. It can't be that easy. It took my brothers, but it left me. 
scared off by a song, really? Or because it smelled something in you? I can't worry about the why. I just have to get out of here. My parents will believe me if I tell them Nate and Liam were taken. They'll call the police or, I don't know, animal control? I stumble through the trees and I hum loudly the whole way. It had to have been the song. I emerge covered in dirt, sweat, and tears. The sun pierces into me until I cover my eyes, whimpering. Has it always been so bright? It's fine. It's just because I was in the dark for a while. It's fine. I have to hurry. Our parents didn't notice we were still gone, and I know because when I go inside, they're in the kitchen, cooking dinner, and they're shocked at my appearance. Sandy, what happened? My mom reaches for me. I almost lash out at her, fingernails like claws across her face. The muscles in my arms spasm, wanting, wanting. I make a fist. I hold it down. Dad's hand is on my shoulder. I wonder if he can feel the heat coming off of my skin like summer pavement. Where are your brothers? They're gone. It took them. Took them? What? <laughs> the thing in the backyard. It took them. You have to call someone. You had to get help. I sound hysterical, and I know it, but I think I get to be hysterical right now. Dad shakes his head, and of all things, he laughs. After a moment, Mom does, too. She brushes the hair back from my forehead. Oh, sweetie, they're probably just playing a prank on you. I dig my nails into my palms so hard that I feel something warm dribble out. No, they're not. It took them. Mom looks at Dad. Uh, will you fix this? Look. He nods. He goes out onto the back step and calls their names. Liam! Nate! No one answers, but something might. Don't! You'll bring it right to us! Close the door! Sweetie, what has gotten into you? You know how your brothers are. They take jokes too far sometimes. Mom looks astonished that I won't let it drop. She shakes her head. I think you need to clean up and maybe take a nap. She goes to the sink and wets a washcloth. The sound of water hitting stainless steel and splashing out makes me wince. When Mom tries to bring the washcloth to my face, I stumble backwards. Please. You have to. But I know she's not going to believe me. Neither one will. Dad is still shouting, and I don't know if I'm imagining the rustles and snaps and cracks in the distance. I don't think I'm imagining the way my blood is jumping in my veins and telling me to run, run, run. A nap. You're right. I should nap. That makes Mom smile. She's happy I'm sounding reasonable again. I try to smile back, but quickly walk away through the dining room and living room. The Yorkies cower on the couch away from me. And I know. In my bedroom, I push my dresser in front of the door. It's a solid wood thing made from cherry wood harvested by my grandfather. It'll make a good barricade. It scrapes so loud across the floor that if they weren't shouting for my brothers, mom and dad would hear it. I hope they give up sooner rather than later. I hope they close that back door and lock it too. I hope they call someone who knows what to do. The scratch on my arm is burning. 
creature in the backyard has been sick for at least a year. I'll never know when it got infected, how long it took for it to start losing control, how long it'll be before it loses all control. I try to sketch out a timeline, make guesses, but I can't concentrate and I don't think it matters. Wouldn't a sickness be different across species? There's too much I don't know, and I'm not supposed to take biology until I start high school next year. If I start high school. What I know is that there's something alien roaring inside me, and it's jumpy, and it's violent. What I know is that I can't let my parents into this room. I have to do whatever is necessary to keep them safe. My rules have changed. In our third tale, a woman receives a parting gift in the form of a clown doll from her ex-boyfriend, which causes her to question if she is truly in control of her own mind. Written by Amanda Steele and performed by Erica Sanderson, Andy Cresswell, and James Cleveland, decide where the blame truly lies in clown control. Um, thanks. It was all I could say as Tony handed me the battered and also creepy-looking clown. It certainly looked like it had seen better days. One eye was missing, and half its painted-on smile was faded. It's a family heirloom. My father gave it to me. His father gave it to him. I told you I couldn't have kids when we first met, so that's why I'm giving it to you. Okay... I vowed never to pass it on to any children I might have as I watched Tony carry his boxes to the hire van. Where had he hidden the thing the whole time we lived together? Why had he felt the need to give it to me? Sure, he couldn't have kids, but maybe this thing would be better in the bin. Most couples who split up argued about which CDs belonged to who. They didn't give old and creepy clowns. Well, that did fit with the theory of hating each other, though. I would never give something like that to someone I had any positive feelings for. The parting gift told me everything I needed to know. Tony definitely did not love me anymore. Even so, it was more than disconcerting when I woke up one morning to find the clown propped up at the end of my bed actually saying the words. Tony doesn't love you anymore. My first thought, or perhaps it was wishful thinking was that Tony had somehow sewn one of those recording things into the clown. That would mean his negative feelings towards me were much stronger than I first thought, but it would be a better option than the clown actually talking to me. So I ran to the kitchen and grabbed a pair of scissors, then cut the freaky thing open. There was nothing there, but it had to be some kind of trick, I told myself. I hurled the clown into the bin on my way to work. As the day went on, I gradually got over the uneasiness I had been feeling. 
It was only when I arrived home to see the rubbish truck parked outside that I remembered and breathed a sigh of relief, knowing that thing would soon be taken miles away from me. I went inside the house, did the usual act of changing into my tracksuit bottoms, cooking dinner, then settling down in front of the television. The following morning I left the house to go to work and noticed the rubbish truck was still parked up. When I thought about it, I hadn't actually seen anyone collecting the rubbish the day before, just the truck. Even as I walked towards it, the nagging voice inside my head screamed warnings at me. I was greeted by the sight of the torn open clown and his half-smile and closed eyes. I didn't have time to ask myself if its eyes had been open or shut before. I quickly saw the two rubbish removal men next to the clown. Their chests were ripped apart. I staggered back as I caught sight of the clown's eyes fling open. Just like what you did to me. What? I was unable to accept that the clown was talking. But I knew now. It did more than talk. It killed. The rubbish collection men were visual proof of that. I cut them open. And if you don't want me to do the same to you, then you'll do as I say. I was dumbstruck as I followed the clown into my house, hoping the neighbours wouldn't see. Or maybe I hoped they would. If one of them could call the police. I shook my head. What would they say? I realised that nobody was coming to help me. What do you want? I shut the door behind me, wondering if maybe I could sneak out later when he was asleep. Do ugly-looking and supposedly toy clowns sleep? It was as though he read my mind. I never sleep. I was the thing's owner, which apparently gave it free access to my innermost thoughts. Only I could hear anything it said to me, too. I found that out when the postman knocked on the door the following morning. While I was signing for a parcel, I heard the clown yelling out acts of violence it wanted to carry out on the postman. He obviously couldn't hear the clown, because he didn't even look in my direction as he handed over the parcel, then walked away. You let him go? What was I meant to do? Bring him to me, so I could cut him up and bathe in his insides, like I said. I know you heard me. He didn't, though. That's because I'm yours now, so only you can hear me. That's how this works. Tony gave you to me. That means I can give you away. Sure. But I would kill that person and then come back here to you. And I would keep killing everyone you give me to. Then come back here. Do you really want that? What do you want from me? But it, it doesn't have to be yours. But I need you to bring me people so I can cut them up. I like to cut, and I know you do too. The way you cut me, well, it fucking hurt. But it shows we're alike. I am not like you. But, three days later, after being too terrified to sleep through fear of what the clown might do to me if I did, I found myself inviting the postman in for a glass of lemonade. He gratefully accepted. His gratitude didn't last, though. As soon as I left the room, I heard his screams. 
I knew the clown was cutting into him. I just switched on the radio at full volume, drowning out the postman's screams with a rock song where the singer was screaming something about putting his fingers into his eyes. I guessed the clown might be doing that to the postman, among other more horrific acts of violence. After a week of the clown making me order takeaways and parcels so that he could kill the delivery people, I tried to put my foot down. I honestly don't care who you bring here for me to kill, but I'm going to need someone to play with. Play with? You cut those people open and literally bathed in their blood. He leapt up on the counter, grabbing the kitchen knife. Do you want me to play with you? I could just leave. Then what would you do? I'm bound to you now. I would always find you. I cursed Tony under my breath. Why did he have to inflict this on me? Why couldn't he just break up and take his CDs like a normal person? That could be your thing. Men, you hate them, right? You think they're all bastards. Why not let me take care of them for you? I would be doing you a favour. I shook my head and left the room, but I knew my options were limited. Maybe that's why, later that evening, I found myself signing up to a dating website. Clown was right. Most men were complete and utter assholes. if the men on there were any representation of the male population. Within minutes, I was working my way through the obscene messages I had received. One man had sent me a picture of his private parts, so I decided to start there. Why not show it to me in person? I replied. The response was almost instant. I'm guessing he already sent the same photo to a lot of other women without response. We arranged for him to come to my house half an hour later. He was right on time, too eagerly ringing the bell three times in succession, as though fearful I might change my mind. I was true to my word, though. I did look at his bits in person. It's just that by the time Clown was finished with him, he wasn't attached to those bits anymore. Admit it. The world's better off without him. I was washing the pots from dinner time, trying not to look at Clown, who was still splashing around in the blood and guts of his latest victim. He probably won't be missed at work. I bet he perved on all the women there all the time. The dating site has lost a pervert, which can't be a bad thing. It's still full of perverts. They're all players and they all deserve to have me play with them. Maybe. The next day I logged on again to more messages. One was full of insults, calling me fat and ugly and saying how I should just settle for whatever I can get. Clown jumped onto my shoulder and read the message. Ouch! <laughs> I could settle for my knife into his head. I agreed. And two hours later, the guy was lying on the kitchen floor. Minus his severed head, which Clown was using all my kitchen knives to stab. I think he's dead. I made a mental note that the floor would need extensive cleaning again. And that I would need to buy more kitchen knives. 
It's fun to stab in the head. He carried on with his stabbing. After weeks of this, I began to run out of good reasons for giving victims to the clown. Some of the men on the dating website didn't seem that bad. There was one in particular. He was called Philip. I met him away from the house, promising clown I would bring Philip home after our date. But I just couldn't do it. Philip did all the right things, from asking me about myself and acting like he was genuinely interested in what I had to say, to holding the door open and walking me home. It was so easy to talk to him, and I enjoyed listening to him talk about his life. So I said goodbye at the bottom of my garden path, and I went inside alone. Clown was not happy. Before I could stop him, he was running out of the house and chasing Philip down the street. I ran after him, did my best to protect Philip, but he never saw it coming. How could he have predicted that I would be harbouring a killer clown intent on killing him? The look of fear and shock was still evident on Philip's face as Clown plunged the knife into his neck. (laughs) I called for an ambulance, but Clown had run off before the ambulance and police arrived. Philip had already bled to death, and I was tried for multiple murders after the police found my kitchen knife still in Philip's neck and carried out a search of the house where they found the traces of blood and some body parts I hadn't yet disposed of. I never saw Clown again after that. I never saw the outside of a high-security prison again, either. The judge didn't believe my The Clown Did It plea. In our fourth tale, a young woman is interrogated by a detective regarding her birth mother from whom she was separated after the death of her siblings. Written by Whitley O'Brien and performed by Addison Peacock and Mike Delgadio, uncover the truth amidst the lies I tell. Margaret, are you ready to begin? The smartly dressed detective slides into the chair across from mine in this dim little room. I thought interrogation rooms were supposed to be well lit. Shadows shroud this room like a veil. Margaret, can we begin? Yeah, sure. Let's begin. He nods and looks down at the yellow legal pad in front of him. Nods again and leans forward, pressing a button on the tape recorder. Please state your name for the record, ma'am. Margaret Greenwell. And your age as well, please. 21. His politeness is starting to irk me. I've already been through this part of the process many times over. Ms. Greenwell, is it true that you are choosing to waive legal counsel at this time? Yes. Please, let's just get on with it. My cool is collapsing. I've been in and out of these bland, dingy rooms for hours. It's going on 2 a.m. and I'm ready to go to sleep. He smiles as if he finds my forcefulness adorable. Okay, I understand. You must be tired. I don't dignify that with an answer. He knows I'm tired. He knows I'm mentally exhausted. 
That's why he's in here now to take my official statement instead of six hours ago when I might have been more alert. He thinks he can use this dirty tactic to get me to tell him something about what happened tonight that he doesn't already know. Could you please tell me where you were over the last 24 hours? I was at my apartment, then I was here. And who else was with you in your apartment? Just me, my mother, and my cat. Could you state the name of your mother, please? Allison Moore. You don't have the same last name as your mother? As you know, I was adopted as a child. I bear the name of my adoptive family. Oh, yes, that's right. My apologies. He smiles in a way that most would find friendly. But I see it for what it is. He's gloating. At what age were you adopted, for the record? I was seven when I was adopted. And what was your life like before you were adopted? What was your relationship with your mother like? I don't know. As you doubtlessly know, I don't remember much before being adopted. And what precipitated the need for your adoption? I roll my eyes. He's so predictable. My siblings were murdered. My mother was the only suspect. Care to elaborate on that? I sigh deeply, but delve back into the story that I've told at least four people already tonight. When I was seven, my mother allegedly had a break from reality brought on by severe, undiagnosed postpartum psychosis following the birth of my baby sister, Ellie. She killed Ellie first by drowning her in the bath. She was only six months old. My little brother, Jake, walked in on her, and she chased him through the house with a knife, eventually catching and killing him, too. He was five. I heard the commotion and hid in my toy chest. She had come out of her delusion before she found me. I was the only survivor. The detective nods and makes a note on his pad. He already knows this story. He's hoping if he makes me repeat it again, I'll crack and spill something new. But I thought you had no memory of the incident. I don't, but I've read the files. Well, what about your father? I never knew him. Oh, do you know his name? Or where he's from? Anything about him? I shake my head and tell my first lie. It comes out smoothly. No, I don't know anything about him. My mom was a prostitute, so he could really be anyone. Same for my siblings. Okay. Well, what happened after your mother was taken into custody? What's the first thing you remember? The first memory I have is meeting my adopted mother, Cheryl Greenwell, at the group home. She was nice and pretty, and she told me it was okay that I couldn't remember what happened because we could make new memories. And how was your childhood? After you were adopted, of course. It was lovely. I have the best family a girl could hope for. My mom and dad and my older brothers all welcomed me with open arms. So there's no lasting effects from the trauma you experienced, aside from the memory loss you still experience today? No hospitalizations? Just one. I cross my arms over my chest. I know he's going to make me talk about it, but I'm not going to make it easier on him. When was this? When I was 11. What happened? I had another episode. Lost six months. He sighs, irritation creasing his face. He seems to have dropped the we're-just-having-a-friendly-chat act, and I respect him more for it. What caused that? When I was 10, my mother sat us all down and explained that we would be welcoming a new family member soon. We all expected her to say that she was going to be adopting a new kid, but she said she was six months pregnant. I stop and take a sip of the warm water from the styrofoam cup I'd been given hours ago. We all knew she couldn't have children of her own. At least that's what she told us. That's why she adopted. I found out later that she never really gave up on the dream of bearing a child. 
She just quietly hid the miscarriages from us. I couldn't tell you how many. But this time, she had made it further than ever before, so she told us. Were you upset? Is that what led to the hospitalization? Upset? We were excited. Especially me, after I found out that it was a girl. I was tired of being the only girl. Couldn't wait to have a sister. You weren't worried about your parents loving you less when they had a child of their own? My eyes blaze. I raise my voice for the first time since being here. We are their children. Just because my brothers and I were adopted doesn't mean we aren't their children. The detective gives no indication he even registered my outburst. So I'm lost as to how this relates to your subsequent hospitalization. Do you want to hear this or not? He raises his hands in supplication and I continue. Like I said, we were all excited about the baby. When mom went into labor less than two months later, we all camped out in the hospital waiting room. My sister was born premature, so she spent a couple weeks in the hospital before coming home. She was so small and beautiful. They named her Emma. When she came home, it wasn't at all like any of us kids expected it to be. We were expecting to get to hold her and feed her and play with her all the time, but we couldn't. She was sickly from being born early and seemed to always be wailing. The boys stayed away as much as possible, even dad. But I stayed with mom and Emma all the time. I was always by their side, ready to run and fetch diapers or fresh clothes when Emma inevitably spit up most of what little she'd eaten. I stopped talking, getting lost in the memory. The stuffy room, the sour smell of partially digested breast milk, my mother's gentle voice as she practically begged the baby to eat, to sleep, to stop crying. But none of that bothered me. What had bothered me was the fact that even with all the crying and even with all the smells and the lack of sleep, my mom was happier than I had ever seen her. She finally had what she'd suffered so much for, what she'd really wanted all along. But I don't say that to the detective. Emma was with us for four months. Then she was gone. My last memory before everything went blank is my mom's scream, waking me from sleep. So Emma's death triggered another bout of memory loss and your hospitalization? What caused her death? I shrug and swipe at a tear. Later, when I was more myself again, I asked to see her. I asked them to bring her to the hospital. I had forgotten she was dead. They told me it was failure to thrive or SIDS or whatever else bullshit terms they use when what they mean is, we don't know. I was in the hospital, nearly catatonic for six months after my baby sister died. I didn't even get to go to her funeral. And that must have been difficult for you to cope with at such a young age. Of course. It was difficult for all of us. He shifts in his chair and I can tell he's ready to move on. So were there any other instances of memory loss? Any problems at all? How'd you do in school? Did you have friends? What exactly does all this have to do with anything? I'm getting fed up with telling my life story. I've been through a traumatic experience and this asshole won't let me leave. I can feel my level of irritation rising by the second. <laughs> Look, I'm just trying to get a feel for your life and the things you've been through. We can stop the interview at any time, but you do know that the quicker we get through this, the quicker we can all go home. He smiles. What he means is if I don't talk to him now, I will talk to him later. The only difference is how long he'll make me sit here in between. 
Fine. No, there were no other problems. I did well in school, rarely got into trouble, and I had a few friends here and there, not too many. But hey, being unpopular isn't a crime, is it? (laughs) Not that I'm aware of. So how did you end up back in contact with your birth mother? Finally, he's asking the relevant questions. When I turned 18, I decided I was ready to know more about her. I only knew just the bare basics of the story up until then. My parents thought it would be best to shield me from the horror as much as possible, considering my innate reaction to trauma. But I went behind their backs when I was officially an adult and dug into all the case files and such. I found out where my birth mother was being held, and I decided to write her. Why would you want to speak to the woman who murdered your siblings? Weren't you horrified? His eyes sparkle as he asks this, and I get the feeling that if he had been in my shoes, he would have done the same. You have to remember that I didn't even remember my siblings. I was detached from that horror. You might also remember that she was found incompetent to stand trial. Insane. She hadn't been in her right mind when she killed them. Okay, and how was your interaction with her? How was she? Well, she'd spent the last decade in a mental institution, so she wasn't all there. But she seemed nice, soft-spoken, timid even. She was happy to hear from me and proud of how I'd grown up. I decided not to mention that she had chosen not to return my first six letters. That when she finally wrote back, she was dead set against meeting me. I had had to beg my own mother to see me. But eventually, she began to trust me, to look forward to seeing me, to love me, even. So, when her time at Shady Hills was done and she needed somewhere to live, you thought it would be best that she moved in with you? She had no one else. It was move in with me or move into a halfway house with a bunch of junkies. She was better off with me. Do you really think that? Even now? After everything that's happened? I look down at the chipped table and shake my head. When did things start to go wrong? What can I say to that? I can't say that she never wanted to move in with me, that as soon as I'd heard of her impending release, I had begged and pleaded and guilted her into changing her mind. I can't explain the haunted look in her eyes when all I wanted was for her to love me. No, I can't say any of that. I don't know. I noticed that she was starting to become more paranoid about a month or so ago. We had been living together for half a year by that time. She would lock herself in her room for days on end. I had to force her to shower, to eat. I should have called someone, had her recommitted, but I didn't. I didn't want to betray her by sending her back. In truth, she had been paranoid from the start, jumping when I entered the room, keeping to herself as much as possible. She didn't want to do all the mother-daughter things I had planned for us, going to dinner, Movies, getting manicures. All she wanted to do was spend all of her time as far from me as she could get. I couldn't understand. Couldn't get why she didn't like me. Did you ever get the feeling that she might be dangerous? I did notice a knife missing from the kitchen, but I never thought she took it. I thought I'd misplaced it somehow. Another lie. I noticed the missing knives almost immediately. At first, I did think I'd misplaced them. Then I found one in her room, under her pillow, and I broke down. I screamed and cried and accused and begged, but still I was met with that same timid expression 
like a little dog that's been kicked one too many times, but still does its best not to anger its master. She wouldn't tell me why she hated me, what she was so afraid of. So what started the incident tonight? I don't know. I just went into her room to tell her dinner was ready and caught her with the knife. I tried to take it from her, but she got aggressive. The lies flow so smoothly from my lips now I can hardly tell I'm talking. Both storylines run through my head, superimposed over one another. She hadn't spoken a word until I held the blade to my wrist, threatened to end it all. What hope could I have, after all, if even my mother couldn't love me? Then she'd moved toward me, taken my arm and led me to her bed, sat me down, and told me everything. How did you end up with the knife, Margaret? I... We struggled, wrestled for it. I knocked her against the wall and the knife fell from her hand. I grabbed it before she could. She told me about who I am, where I came from, and what really happened that night so many years ago. As she spoke, memories flooded back to me. I was seven years old and in the tiny bathroom my family shared. The walls were wet with steamy condensation and my little sister, Ellie, sat in the bathtub in her little bath chair. I'll be right back. Watch your sister, my mom said. Ellie was kicking and splashing and laughing. Then I was staring at her face, gazing up at me as I held her under the water, still kicking, still splashing, but not laughing anymore. My brother screaming as I chased him down the hall, grabbing the knife I always kept hidden in my toy chest cornering him in his room and plunging it into his chest over and over. My other baby sister sleeping peacefully for once. My new mother lying beside her, snoring loudly as she got the first deep sleep in four months. My hand covering Emma's mouth and nose. My other hand holding her tiny body still as she tried to squirm, not letting go until she was still. When she came at me again, I knew I had to use the knife. It was her or me. I wipe the tears from my face and look up at the detective. I can see that he's not really satisfied with my story, but I know he has nothing on me. I think we're done here. I've heard all I needed to hear. I, I just have one last question. I nod at him to continue, my head in my hands. Why do you remember everything that happened? It seems that your typical coping mechanism is to block out traumatic memories. So, why do you remember this one? I look up and into his eyes. He's looking at me with compassion. None of the disgust and suspicion I had been imagining. And I tell my last lie of the night. I don't know. Back in my apartment, I collapse onto my couch, utterly exhausted. I'll have to clean the spare bedroom soon, probably replace the carpet. I close my eyes and think about everything I've learned today, about myself, about my mother, about how she was picked up one night working the streets by a man who turned out to have a dismembered body in his back seat, how she had escaped before he could kill her, but not before he could rape her, how she thought about killing me when she found out she was pregnant, how she held out hope I was another man's child. She said as soon as I was born, she could see him in my eyes, could feel him in my soul. But she loved me anyway. 
loved me enough to take the fall for the murder of her children, loved me enough to spend 10 years locked away in a mental institution. It's touching, really. Makes her death that much harder. But once she started talking about therapy and working through our issues, I knew I couldn't let her live. She would eventually let something slip to the wrong person. I will miss her, but I still have my adoptive parents. They'll support me through the next few weeks. The investigation, the funeral, and I'm sure they'll support my decision to find my birth dad, assuming he's still alive. I hope he'll be happy to hear from me. I have so much to learn. In our fifth and final tale, travel with us back to 1959, where a group of young boys has decided to spend Halloween night in the Cochrane House, a local haunted hotspot after the unfortunate death of the previous occupants. Written by Charles Williams and performed by Mike Delgadio, Kyle Akers, Matthew Bradford, Dan Zapula, Sarah Ruth Thomas, Mary Murphy, Erica Sanderson, Atticus Jackson, Nicole Doolin, and Jesse Cornett steal your courage as we investigate the stain. Every small town had a haunted house in the 1950s, and it beckoned to every child who walked in its shadow. In Murphy's Landing, the place that whispered in the darkest corner of our collective imagination was the Cochrane House. The large Victorian home had been built in 1855 by Captain Samuel Cochrane, a former cavalry officer and local entrepreneur who found his fortune during the gold rush of 1849. Its weather blackened wood exterior had not felt the comfort of paint in over two decades. The second story's opaque bay windows teased an invitation for some while sending an ominous warning to others. It stared down at the town from the corner of a 20-acre parcel on Tombs Road. <laughs> the road's name conjured visions of graveyards in our young minds and nourished the supernatural reputation of the house. <laughs> in 1959, the only texts we received were the books handed out at the beginning of the school year. Many of us lived on farms outside Murphy's Landing, and the playground was the hub of our social network. Recess time was partially devoted to swapping tales about the exploits of our older siblings, TV cowboys, sports heroes, and the strangest, grossest stuff our fifth grade brains could ponder. In the weeks before Halloween, our conversations revolved around the things that scared us the most. You know, each of us had our own interpretation of the lore surrounding the Cochrane House. Although the genesis of the stories was the same, changes in the graphic details gave each narrative a distinctive flavor. My brother says five people got captivated in that house on Halloween about 30 years ago. Billy Giannetti's typical malapropism did not hinder his enthusiasm as he huddled with our group on the chilly basketball court of Oakwood Elementary School. 
It was morning recess in late October, and Art Ramos, Corky McDonald, and I looked at him with equal disdain. Art rolled his eyes. The word is decapitated, you moron. I think your brother is full of bull. Or some other kind of livestock is full of your brother. <laughs> Corky was referring to the common knowledge that Billy's older brother had been caught in a compromising position with one of the family's sheep. <laughs> well, they got their heads cut off and nobody ever found them. The heads, I mean. My brother wouldn't lie and he never screwed a sheep. And there are plenty of weird stories about that house. Who really knows what's true and what isn't? Though I took my familiar role as peacemaker, I was pretty sure Billy's brother was full of crap too. The morning bell rang and the four of us raced to claim our place in line. There had been a marked improvement in the time it took the boys in room 24 to arrive at their designated spot that year. The reason walked briskly towards us as we positioned ourselves with military precision. Miss Quatrain was a first-year teacher and the most beautiful creature I had ever laid my eyes on. If she had just been attractive, the novelty of having such a young instructor might have worn thin. Miss Quatrain, however, was as kind as she was gorgeous, and the best teacher we ever had. All of the boys were madly in love with her. After the pledge, the class always began with ten minutes of silent, sustained reading. Miss Quatrain used this time to take roll and check homework. But on that morning, she broke her routine. Bobby Tigert. May I see you outside the room for a minute? She rose from her desk and motioned for me to follow. I had an awful feeling in the pit of my stomach, despite knowing that I hadn't done anything wrong. Bobby, I'm afraid I have some bad news to share with you. I noticed for the first time that she had been crying. Carl Swearington and his family were involved in a terrible car accident last night. Carl, his father, and two of his sisters were killed. I'm so sorry, Bobby. I wanted to tell you before I told the rest of the class. I know you two became good friends during the brief time he was at the school. In truth, I had been Carl's only friend. He and his family had lived in Murphy's Landing only for a few months, the last people to inhabit the Cochrane House. The Swearingtons had clearly fallen on hard times and become trapped in an itinerant lifestyle. It was hard to blend in when your clothes were shabby and you lived in the town's haunted house. Miss Quatrain had paired me with Carl on a science project, and I found out that we had shared a love of animals and nature. We spent one magical day together down by the river catching tadpoles. We bonded, as boys quickly do in pursuit of weekend adventures. Friends were easily made in grade school they can also disappear suddenly. Carl and his two younger sisters stopped coming to Oakwood shortly after that day at the river. My mother told me that the family had packed up and left the Cochrane house in the darkness of a late September night without telling anyone. No one seemed to know where they went. I hadn't heard anything else about Carl until that morning. Death holds a fascination for the young. The shock I felt after hearing about Carl, well, that didn't stop me from dissecting the circumstances of his death with my friends in the days that followed. Had he suffered or died instantly? Was he in heaven or was he a ghost? Did he have an open casket? 
Did the time he spent in the Cochrane house curse his family in some way? When Billy started speculating on whether Carl had been captivated, I steered the morbid discussion in a different direction. So, Halloween is next Saturday, guys. How great is that? No school the next day. I always looked forward to Halloween, but having it fall on the weekend, <laughs> I made it even more special. I still have to go to Mass on Sunday. You guys should spend the night at my house. We only go to church on Easter and Christmas. Corky had the coolest parents in our group. His mom was an artist and his dad wrote for a travel magazine. I heard my mom call them Bohemians once, a label I didn't understand until much later. I just knew that they were laid back and nice and the McDonald house was our favorite hangout. Count me in. Art was always the first to respond when one of us had a sleepover. His mom and dad, they didn't seem to care much about what he did when he wasn't at home. Or when he was home for that matter. Man, you're the ginchiest. Billy had recently purchased the novelty record Kooky Kooky Love Me Your Comb and was using its catchphrase as often as he could. <laughs> Much to everyone's chagrin. That's a great idea, Corky. We can go trick-or-treating together and soap a few windows before we call it a night. Soaping windows was about as wild as I dared to be on Halloween. I have a better idea. How about if we pay a little visit to the Cochrane house that night? What do you have in mind? Okay, so the house is empty now, right? It has been since Carl and his family moved out. And people like to be scared on Halloween, right? Some might even be brave enough to walk past a real haunted house, just for the thrill. It's kinda like visiting Santa's workshop in the town square at Christmas time. They just want to experience the holiday. Why don't we go to the Cochrane house after trick-or-treating and see if anyone shows up? The front yard is so overgrown that there'll be plenty of places where we can hide. We can drop some hints around the playground about something special happening there on Halloween. And when somebody comes by looking for a little holiday spirit, we give them a little more than they bargained for. That's the lamest idea I ever heard. Well, it might be if all we were going to do was jump out of the bushes and say, Boo! I just happened to have a half dozen M80s left over from the 4th of July. My dad keeps them in his locker in the garage. What do you think people will do when they walk by a haunted house on Halloween and hear one of those babies go off? They're going to shit a brick. The week before Halloween brought the end of a lingering Indian summer to California's Central Valley. As the temperature dropped, our excitement rose in anticipation of our Saturday night mission. We all managed to get our parents' permission to spend the night at Corky's, some with a little more effort than others. My mother had capitulated with a soft sell, her empathetic nature sensing how important it was for me to be with my friends. Bobby, we've never really talked about what happened to Carl. Is there anything you want to tell me about your friend, or how you're feeling about his death? You haven't said much about it, and I wanted to give you some time to process it in your own way. I'm okay, Mom. I didn't really know Carl all that well. It's just that, well, he was my age, you know? Kids my age aren't supposed to die, are they? No, sweetheart, they're not. Mom put her arm around my shoulders and leaned her head to touch mine. 
It's not the natural order of things. Unfortunately, life can be shorter for some people than for others. It's a difficult lesson to learn. Most of the kids only saw Carl as the poor kid who couldn't afford nice clothes. But I saw something more. When we were down at the river, I got to see what he was really like inside. Do you understand what I mean? Of course I do. What did you boys talk about when you were looking for tadpoles? I thought again about the time I spent with Carl. How the light coming through the dogwoods dappled the black earth of the riverbank and the water shimmered as we waded in the shallow pools. He talked about how much he loved the outdoors, how much he liked being around animals and natural things more than people. He talked about living in the Cochrane house. His mother had told him that it carried a stain. She said the house would always be dirty, that it had been built with tainted wood and no amount of cleaning would ever rid it of its filth. She said the terrible things that happened there had only made the stain deeper. She hadn't wanted to move there, but her husband said it was all they could afford and that they wouldn't stay long. Her greatest fears was that the stain would mark their family if they didn't leave soon. I felt my mother's arm bring me a little closer. I've always hated that place. It should have been torn down years ago. The man who built it was as evil as a human being can be. Better to have that house gone and his memory with it. It was unusual for my mom to say anything bad about anyone or anything. Hearing her talk like that about the Cochrane house bothered me more than any of the lurid stories I'd heard on the playground. I found myself in front of the tiny downtown library the next day after school. Miss Hoagland, the town librarian, well, she resembled the Wicked Witch of the West from The Wizard of Oz. Her gray-streaked hair was pulled back in a tight bun, exposing a frown-lined face that reminded me of the wind-eroded desert landscape pictured in my science text. Well, she protected the library's books with a passion she had never been able to show for anything else in her life. I once felt her wrath for spending too much time with a copy of National Geographic at the back table. In the 23 years I lived in Murphy's Landing, I never saw her smile. Miss Hoagland, do you have anything on the Cochran House? Any books or newspaper articles? I'm supposed to write a scary story for Halloween. I thought I'd do mine about a haunted house. It was always best to approach the librarian with a school-inspired request, even a fictional one. So, they're assigning Halloween projects at school now, are they? Miss Hoagland squinted behind black horn-rimmed glasses perched upon her equine nose. She turned and disappeared into the aisle marked reference without uttering another word. She returned carrying a large leather-bound volume with the edges of several yellowed errant pages sticking out. This book has what you're looking for, young man. Maybe it will teach you to be careful about what you ask for next time. Halloween assignment indeed. Pagan holiday. She handed me the book, and I struggled briefly to manage its weight and loose binding. I could feel Miss Hoagland's icy stare follow me as I carried it to a table, so I took a chair facing away from the front desk. The book's cover was embossed with gold letters which said, The History of Murphy's Landing. The book had the musty smell of my grandmother's basement. I opened it gingerly, half expecting a giant cockroach to scurry out from the volume's brittle spine. 
Some of the pages were water-stained and others torn, but I was able to find a section containing the stories of the founding fathers of Murphy's Landing. The biographical sketch of Captain Samuel Cochran was by far the longest. Samuel Cochran's rank of captain was not an official one. He led a militia of miners against the Chowchilla tribe during the Mariposa War of 1850-1851. With the governor's blessing, the group's goal was to drive the Indians from valuable mining lands and abets the state's campaign of genocide against all Native Americans in California. They approached their mission with relish. Cochran's cruelty during this endeavor was well documented. The worst case involved two young Chowchilla brothers who had escaped from the militia's confinement and been recaptured. Captain Cochran ordered one of the teenagers flayed alive while his sibling watched. The surviving Indian was then wrapped in his brother's skin and forced to wander around the camp until he dropped dead from dehydration three days later. Find what you're looking for? Miss Hoagland's prominent nose suddenly appeared in my peripheral vision, almost causing me to part with my skin as she leaned over my shoulder. Her breath had the same stale smell as the book. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Well, read on, dear boy. It's the stuff that dreams are made of, isn't it? Nightmares, that is. I managed a weak smile as Miss Hoagland turned and directed her attention to a pair of giggling girls at another table. Samuel Cochran arrived in Murphy's Landing in 1853 and opened the town's first general store. His mines in Mariposa County had made him a wealthy man and he quickly acquired an uh, unsavory reputation for his miserly business practices. A confirmed bachelor at the age of 50, he surprised everyone by returning from a buying trip to San Francisco with a young Irish wife. Construction of the Cochran House began shortly thereafter. Samuel insisted on bringing the timber for his house from the pristine forests of Mariposa County, one final pillage from the home of the Chowchilla. A shaman from the tribe is said to have marked the trees with the blood of fallen warriors before their transport to Murphy's Landing imbuing the wood with the spirit of death and destruction. Well, whatever marital bliss Catherine Cochran found in her union with Samuel was short-lived. A year after their home was completed, she gave birth to a son. Catherine soon began telling people that her baby was a changeling, that her real child had been taken by the fairies and an imposter left in his place. Finding no comfort in the indifference of her husband, she hung herself from the balcony of the second story the first casualty of the Cochran house. Michael, the couple's son, was seldom seen in the years that followed and never without a hood covering his face. It was rumored that he suffered from some malady of the skin, causing excessive dryness and persistent sores. There was speculation that the boy's condition had prompted his mother's delusion. On his 13th birthday, Michael Cochran was shot in the head by his father as he slept. Captain Samuel Cochran then turned the gun on himself and committed suicide, his blood soaking into the thirsty wooden floor. Miss Hoagland had been right about the nightmares. That night, I dreamt about the Cochran house. In my dream, Carl Swearington and I were walking down Tombs Road on our way to the river. Carl stopped suddenly in front of the house and opened the gate of its decaying picket fence. 
As he approached the warped wooden steps, the front door slowly opened into blackness. Carl turned around before entering, but something had changed in the visage staring back at me. Carl's face now resembled a ventriloquist's dummy, his cheeks unnaturally pink and full. His eyes were sealed shut, and the left side of his head was caved in at the hairline. Carl's ruby-red lips curled into a broken-toothed smile before he turned back and disappeared into the darkness of the house. I raised my view to one of the bay windows on the second story, where a tall, shadowy figure seemed to wait patiently behind the cloudy glass. Happy Halloween, Lazy Bones! Your mom's got breakfast ready, so get your bony little butt out of bed and get busy haunting the kitchen. Dad's idea of being clever was to reference the skeleton costume my mom had bought for me at Woods Variety. One of his greatest pleasures in life seemed to be rousing me from a deep sleep on Saturdays. <laughs> well, on that particular morning, I was grateful for the wake-up call, no matter how lame. After breakfast, I began my weekend chores. The change in temperature and a brisk autumn wind had convinced the large sycamores in front of our house to shed all of their leaves at once. I was taking my fourth wheelbarrow load to the burn pile when Mom called me from the back door. Corky is on the phone, dear. I jogged back over to the house. Bob, hey! Y'all ready for tonight, buddy? It's gonna be more fun than watching Annette's boobs grow. Next to baseball, monitoring Annette Funicello's journey into womanhood was the national pastime of most preteen boys around here. Yeah, I've been thinking about your idea to go to Cochran House. I don't think it's such a great idea. I did some reading about it yesterday at the library, and I've got a bad feeling about messing around with that place. It feels... I don't know, disrespectful? Disrespectful to who, Bobby? Don't tell me you're gonna let Billy's stories make a chicken out of you. It's just an old deserted house, that's all. The only haunting going on there tonight is gonna be done by us. Grow a pair, buddy. Carl and my mom said some things about the house that got me thinking, Corky. And then I read about everything that happened there. Carl's mom said that the Cochran house has a stain and nothing can get rid of it. What if she's right? What if the stain spreads to us just by being there tonight? My mother walked through the hallway where I was talking to Corky, and I lowered my voice beneath her inquisitive glance. So, you think Carl's accident was caused by a stain from the house? My dad said Carl's old man was an alky, and he was drunk on the night of the wreck. The only stains you should worry about tonight are the ones left in people's drawers when one of those M-80s goes off. If I had been older, I might have stuck to my guns and told Corky that I wasn't going with him to the Cochran house. But I didn't want to be called a chicken. Much of the way I experienced the world was in the company of my friends, and I wanted to be with them on Halloween. So I agreed to meet Corky and the others at his house at 5 o'clock to begin trick-or-treating. My skeleton outfit turned out to be the only store-bought costume in the group. Corky had opted for a piecemeal cowboy look, 
an old Davy Crockett fringed shirt partnered with faded Levi's, cowboy boots, and a hat, and a pair of Mattel six-shooters from the prior Christmas. Art was the least inspired of us. His hobo getup consisting of a mop handle, a red bandana filled with dirty socks tied to the handle's end, and some hastily charcoaled whiskers. Billy arrived dressed as a girl, complete with heavy makeup. It was a bold choice in 1959, but one that would become more understandable in the years that followed. Murphy's Landing was in the middle of a cultural transition. Many of the houses on the south end of town were one- or two-bedroom clabbered structures inhabited by families who had escaped the Dust Bowl in the 30s and 40s. A modern subdivision, dubbed by the locals as the New Addition, was separated from Oakyville by Murphy Community Park and occupied the northern section of town. The more affluent residents living in this area were our primary targets for trick-or-treating. The previous year, we had made one pass through the New Addition, gone to Art's house and changed costumes, then made a second trip to the subdivision without arousing suspicion. But with the Cochrane House on the night's agenda, there was no time for a similar act of Halloween trickery. We returned to Corky's house before heading to the Cochrane House. He was the only one of us who lived in the new addition. We distracted his parents with complaints about non-treating neighbors as he snatched the keys to his dad's storage locker from a hook on the kitchen wall. Dad, I think we're gonna head out again. It's still early, and Oakyville awaits. Corky, you know I don't like that name. His mom directed her eyes towards Art, picking at his candy across the room. Think before you speak next time. The Ramos family, along with many others of Mexican descent, lived on the south side of Murphy's Landing. Corky went into the garage, using the ruse of getting more paper bags for our treats. He returned and gave me a wink. On our way out the front door, Corky stopped and looked at the two glowing jack-o'-lanterns beaming toothy smiles on the front porch. He pointed to the largest one. Hey, Billy, grab that pumpkin on the left. Why are we taking a jack-o'-lantern? Corky patted a bulky bag that he had brought in from the garage. Bait. Although the McDonald's home and the Cochran house were separated in construction by a hundred years, the actual distance between the two buildings was less than a half a mile. We took turns carrying the jack-o'-lantern after Billy's inevitable whine about its heaviness. The ten-minute walk took us from the well-lighted streets of the new addition into the darker, tree-lined avenues of the older part of town. Along the way, we saw groups of children running from house to house and echoes of trick-or-treat providing the soundtrack of our trip. In the distance, the Cochrane House stood stoically against the blue-black sky, an ominous presence joining anyone whose quest for candy took them to the edge of town. Suck a chicken egg, chicken dick. A passing car filled with teenagers roared by, leaving Billy covered with dripping yellow yolk and pieces of white eggshell. Shit. Assholes. Billy held his arms out like a supplicant beggar and inspected the damage to his frilly dress. The car sped around the corner and disappeared, and the sight of Billy brought on gales of laughter from the rest of us. Oh, come on, Billy. It's Halloween. I guess the yolk's on you. Billy gave Art the finger and gamely wiped the egg from the front of his dress with his yellow Goldilocks wig. When he was done, he threw it disgustedly to the ground. Let's just get going. We reached Tombs Road and left the assurance of the last streetlight behind. 
The Cochrane House loomed above us, its dark silhouette accentuated by the light of a full moon. The rotting picket fence opened into an unkept yard with several overgrown oleander bushes pointing the way to the front porch. We walked carefully through the tall grass, imagining all sorts of crawling and slithering things waiting for one fatal misstep. Reaching the uneven wooden steps, we looked to Corky for our next move. Give me the jack-o'-lantern, Bobby. The task of carrying the pumpkin had fallen to me during the last part of our journey. I exchanged the jack-o'-lantern for Corky's paper bags, and he slowly ascended the creaking boards to the porch. He placed the pumpkin on the top step and motioned for one of the bags. He took a votive candle and some matches and turned the jack-o'-lantern to face the lice of the town. He lit the candle and placed it inside the pumpkin. Its glimmering face became a lighthouse beacon, bidding wayward Halloween travelers to approach with caution. That should get us some action. I'd love to see those clowns that egg Billy come by to investigate. I bet you'd like that too, eh, Billy? I'd love that. Billy smiled for the first time since the incident. Okay, men, pick a bush. I'll keep the M80s with me. If someone shows, stay put. I don't want you guys to end up in the line of fire. Corky positioned himself behind the oleander bush closest to the road, and the rest of us scattered to find a place among the other shrubs and tall grass. Fifth graders are not known for their patience, and after 20 minutes our restlessness began to show. Several cars had driven by on tombs, but only one had slowed enough to give us any hope of it stopping. That car had simply paused long enough to take a look and driven off, and no trick-or-treaters had been lured by the jack-o'-lantern. Of course, Billy was the first one to question Linus about wasting our night in the pumpkin patch. Corky, I'm not staying out here all night for nothing. These weeds are sticking to my dress. Billy stood up from behind one of the oleanders, some of his yellow-stained fabric catching on the branches as he rose. Maybe it's time to pack it in, Cork. It was a great idea. Except for the fact that no one showed up to be scared. Art emerged from the long grass beneath the porch steps. I think they're right, Corky. It's still early enough to work our way back through the south side. I say we start walking. Ten more minutes, guys. That's all I'm asking. Corky was seldom in the position of asking a favor from us, so we decided to give him the ten minutes and settled back into our hiding places. A few moments later, Art's voice broke the stillness of the night. Hey, somebody's out here. I just caught a glimpse of someone peeking around the corner of the house. We gathered together from our covert positions. Are you pulling my leg, Art? Maybe you're just trying to add a little life to the party before it's over? No, no, I swear. I just turned to the side and I saw this kid's head sticking out from behind the house. God, it was creepy. Maybe someone had the same idea we did, boys. Let's find out. Corky retrieved his bag containing the M80s, and we followed him around the side of the house. We walked silently in a single-file line, clinging to the perimeter of the building. 
When we reached the back of the house, we found the sloping cellar doors had been thrown open. A rusted padlock and chain lay on the ground in front of them. Anyone want to go down there with me? You're, you're kidding, right? We didn't sign up for this. Come on, weenies. I think someone is trying to beat us at our own game. Let's see how brave they really are. It was clear Corky had made his mind up, and none of us was willing to let him enter the cellar by himself. Corky reached into his bag and pulled out a flashlight. Always be prepared. That's my motto. He handed the bag to Art. The original wooden steps into the cellar had been replaced by concrete in the 1930s. They were steep and covered with dirt and rat droppings. Corky led the way with his flashlight, but much of our descent had to be made in darkness. About halfway down, I walked into a cobweb hanging from the entrance. I fought the urge to scream as I frantically waved my hands on top of my head and leaned against the stairway for support. I lost the battle when I felt something with multiple legs crawl slowly across my face and drop at my feet. If I hadn't been the last in line, I might have caused everyone to panic and fall. Jeez, Bobby. I'm supposed to be the girl here. Finally, we reached the dirt floor at the bottom of the steps. Corky used his flashlight to survey the rest of the cellar. One wall was lined with crudely made wooden shelves, empty except for the dusty spiderwebs stretching from corner to corner, like the threadbare valances of ancient curtains. An old burgundy sofa with a raised floral pattern rested against another wall, providing refuge for a family of mice that scurried to escape the flashlight's beam. A large furnace dominated the center of the cellar, its large pipes reaching for the ceiling like the arms of some evil robot in a 1940s serial. Finally, Corky's light found the stairs to the main floor. There was a brief reflection as the light passed over a glass jar on the bottom step. Something alive wiggled inside the jar. We huddled behind Corky as he focused the light on the glass container. Three large tadpoles swam in circles, exploring the limits of their cylindrical prison. What the heck is that? It looks like the tadpoles that Carl and I caught at the river, but that can't be. That was over a month ago, and I watched Carl let them go before we came home. Why would someone put them down here? Bait. We turned towards the stairs as Corky's flashlight climbed them, one at a time, until it reached the top. Carl Swearington sat on the first step, his misshaped head and powdered rouged face displaying the unfortunate collaboration of a horrific car accident and a poorly skilled mortician. His eyes were tightly shut as they had been in my dream, and his crimson mouth was frozen in the same crooked smile. The four of us reacted as one monstrous, panicked entity, a mass of flailing arms and legs as we prodded and pushed our way into the darkness toward the outside entrance of the cellar. Billy gave voice to our creature with a series of guttural cries and hysterical gibberish. When we reached the heavy sloping doors, we found that both had been closed and locked. For Christ's sake, Billy, shut up! 
His light found the impossibly small screened windows that peeked outside the basement at ground level. He pointed the beam of light back to the stairs where Carl had sat. Motes of dust floated serenely as he retraced our path with his light. The jar of tadpoles was gone. Corky moved to a place where he could see the top of the stairway. Carl was no longer there, but the door to the first floor stood ajar. Well, we can stay down here all night and hope someone comes looking for us, or we can go into the house and get out now. Let's take a vote. Who wants to stay? No one raised their hand. I I think it's important that we all stay together, no matter what. Everyone but Billy nodded their head in agreement. Billy, we have to stay close to each other, okay? Corky shined the flashlight in Billy's direction. He nodded and wiped his nose with the sleeve of his dress. We climbed the wooden stairs and entered the Cochrane house. Moonlight streamed through the windows of the kitchen. The shadow of a hastily packed cardboard box filled with utensils reached across the hardwood floor. Apparently, the Swearingtons had been just as anxious to get out of here as we were. Corky led us through an empty dining room and into a large foyer. An enormous rat scrambled away from our footsteps and disappeared into a pile of girls' clothes discarded in the middle of the room. Large oak doors leading to the front of the house were only 30 feet in front of us. Thank God. Don't thank him yet. The voice came from the top of the staircase leading to the house's second story. A tall man emerged from the shadows above the stairs and descended halfway to the bottom. Corky instinctively turned his light in that direction. I knew from the pictures I had seen in the library that we were in the presence of Captain Samuel Cochran. (laughs) He wore a heavily padded gray frock coat over a waistcoat with a notched collar. His pleated trousers wrinkled slightly as he placed each low-heeled shoe deliberately on a step. His gray beard and mustache could not disguise the rash which inflamed his entire face. When he opened his mouth to speak, large wart-like sores inside sent trickles of pus over his chin whiskers. Allow me to share one of his blessings with you. He motioned to the stairs above him. The four of us stood in the middle of the room, silent and immobile. I can't explain why we didn't just make a run for the door. Something seemed to hold us there that night. I don't know that it was our choice to make. A shorter hooded figure walked down the stairs to take a place beside Cochran. He slowly lowered his hood. Michael Cochran's head had been malformed by deformities of his teeth. His sunken chin folded into the roof of his mouth, exposing two jagged incisors on the top of his thin bottom lip. His face was covered with small, erupting pustules. The bridge of his nose had completely collapsed, giving it a skull-like appearance. Some years later, while taking a high school health class, I realized that these were the classic symptoms of congenital syphilis. Samuel and his son began to walk down the stairs towards us. 
Their approach triggered an adrenaline rush in me, and I remembered Corky's M80s in the bag that Art was holding. I also remembered Miss Quatrain teaching us that fireworks had been used in ancient times to frighten away evil spirits. Art, give me the bag. He stared at me blankly as I grabbed it from his hand. Corky, matches, now. Corky roused himself enough to rifle through his pockets for the matches. Shit, I can't find them. Let's just get the hell out of here. Cochran and his son reached the bottom of the stairs. I was about to follow Corky's lead when I saw Billy laying in a heap and Art kneeling beside him. He must have fainted. Michael Cochran and his father walked deliberately towards us. Find the damn matches, Corky! Got him! He threw me the small box. I lit one of the M80s and tossed it at the feet of Samuel and Michael Cochran. They walked over it and continued forward. They had almost reached the place where Billy was laying. I thought about what Carl's mother had said about the stain. I didn't want these spirits to leave their unclean mark on my friend. <laughs> Captain Cochran and his son were no longer hovering over Billy. Look over there. Art was pointing toward the grand staircase. The two ghosts had returned to their position on the stairs. They perched like predatory birds eyeing prey that had escaped their grasp. Corky and I each took one of Billy's arms and pulled him across the room. Art threw open the front doors, and we escaped into the cool autumn night. Wait. Corky took the remaining fireworks and the box of matches and rushed back into the Cochrane house. What is he doing? Corky barreled out of the house a few moments later, yelling. Run! We managed to make it down the porch steps before a series of explosions echoed through the halls of the Cochrane house. By the time we reached the edge of town, the flickering smile of Corky's jack-o'-lantern had been swallowed by the hungry flames engulfing the house. It was a feeble building, and the fire took it quickly. We sat beneath the first streetlight we came upon and watched the fire trucks roar past without the slightest feeling of guilt. I tell you one thing, guys. It beats soap and windows. It'd be nice to conclude the story with that walk home, one of the rare moments in life when you feel totally invincible. There wasn't much of an investigation into the cause of the Cochrane House fire. Most people, like my mom, weren't sorry to see it burn down. Corky, Art, Billy, and I had one more year together before we moved on to junior high. We were no longer in the same class, and although we made an effort to stay close, it was never quite the same. Billy, Billy didn't live to see adulthood. He killed himself in his 17th year, disillusioned and frustrated by a world that would not accept him for who he was. Art, who'd always been a happy-go-lucky kid, succumbed to the bitterness of poverty. 
He's currently serving a prison term for armed robbery. Corky continued his pursuit of adventure. He, like his dad, became a writer and has several popular novels to his credit, all of them about the supernatural. Unfortunately, he's also acquired a nasty cocaine habit along the way and wages a daily battle with his addiction. As for me, I've had a tough time finding my place in the world. I've changed careers a few times, been married and divorced twice, and I have three children that I never see. It's not the life I envisioned for myself. Maybe we didn't escape the stain of the Cochrane house on that Halloween night in 1959 after all. I recently went back to Murphy's Landing to attend a school dedication for Miss Quatrain. She devoted her entire life to students and never married. She's still beautiful. I took a drive down Tombs Road past the place where the Cochrane house once stood. A subdivision now occupies the 20-acre parcel that was once the Cochrane homestead. It's an upscale development with big homes and large lots. The houses are all well-maintained, except for one. Derelict cars litter an untended front yard, and the windows are cracked and foggy, and it hasn't been painted in years. The house is located on the corner of Tombs, near the edge of town, and it beckons to every child who walks in its shadow. As the lights come back on, our stories come to an end. Please remember to be kind and rewind. And visit the nosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2019 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.